You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsor. And today as a guest speaker, we have Angad Singh, founder and CEO at Cassette. Uh, that was acquired by Evernote and currently he is a product manager at Coda. And today we'll talk about his experience with Cassette. How did the acquisition happen? How did he raise his first money? When did he decide to start fundraising? There was a pivot and much more. So we'll discuss all that fun stuff today. So Angad, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Cassetta. Hi, Constantine. It's nice to nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I'm. Uh, my name is Angad. I'm a, currently a product manager at a startup called Coda. Um, Prior to this, I well, actually, out of college, I started a startup called Cassette, uh, which was a it was an app for recording the most important conversations in your life. So you could record, transfer, search across any conversation, which basically meant you don't need to take notes anymore. Uh, you just go into a conversation like this one, start recording, and then when you're done with the conversation, just press stop, and you will have a complete transcript with search and so on. Obviously, that's uh, become pretty popular now, but we started the company about five years ago, and that was mm-hmm. uh, it was a pretty new thing at the time. So we definitely got to work on some pretty cool, uh, innovative stuff at that time. That company got acquired by Evernote. I worked at Evernote for uh, some time, and then now I work at a startup called Coda. That's the short version of the story. Perfect. Love that story and love that it's so short. <laughs> but let's start with actually with the college. So uh you started working on a startup uh back there in college was it like an internship or do you actually get paid there yeah i um i was pretty young when i realized that i was interested in startups and so i tried to make the most of that uh time and you know being a college student i actually i think i probably worked at seven or eight different startups uh for different lengths of time during during the time that i was in college and so you know some of them like you asked some of them i obviously did get paid for many of them I just, it was more for me about the learning and the experience. And I think that was actually really valuable. I got to work at, I think, five different companies that were less than 10 people. Uh, and so I, I had a lot to, a lot of examples to draw on when I started my own company, uh, but also got to work at some bigger companies, including Fitbit, which when I worked there was about 150. So kind of got to see what what a bigger startup looks like as well. Uh, I, I think the the money part, if you're in a position where where you're able to you know, not worry about that. I, I definitely recommend that as an experience uh, if you're interested in learning about startups or maybe starting your own company someday. Uh, I think that was a really good experience. Right. So that's the next question I wanted to discuss. Kind of, uh, what should future founders do? What should they choose? Should they start as you know interns at bigger startups that have like 50 plus people? Should they join some? tiny startup that has like less than 10 people or should they actually start some startup themselves what would you think out of those three specific options what's what's the best one i I wouldn't say that one is better than the others i think there's definitely merits and demerits of all of them uh if you can you can you don't have to you don't have to choose you can do all like in my case if you're young enough or you know you don't you're not quite sure what your idea is you can startups I also think there, there's some value in starting your own startup without so much bias around how things are done at other companies. But generally, I think, you know, no matter who we are, we always have some blind spots. And so working at working at another startup, working at maybe two or three different startups is a great way to calibrate 
uh, where you might be, you know, off base a little bit and where you want to stick to your guns, even if you're different from everybody else. Uh, but you sort of get a much better idea of doing that rather than just hoping that you're right. Um, in my case, I actually worked at a startup of one person, worked at a startup of three people, worked at a startup of seven, you know, a bunch of different numbers and got to see obviously different personalities, different, different industries. And I think I really learned a lot from that experience. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I think it's all about calibrating, as you mentioned, like we'll have biases and working somewhere else helps you really understand where that bias is and how to how to fix it. Uh, but let's go back to cassette. Now I'm yep. pronouncing it right. Yes. <laughs> and let's talk about fundraising. So when was the moment when you were like, okay, now it's time for us to start going out to investors and raise some capital? When was that decision made? Yeah, yeah. I started the company uh, in the second half of 2014. Uh, and initially I was also like still figuring out what I'm doing. I think it was also just a really good time. I was kind of an idealistic person. I, I kind of had this feeling that like, you know, venture capital money is out there. I can take it whenever I want, but I'm not, not in any hurry to do that. And so initially I was just more focused on product development, uh, testing with customers and so on to make sure I was actually on the right track. Uh, for me, where the decision to raise money came from, which I think in retrospect was a really good decision, was uh, because in my case, I wanted to hire people. Uh, I was trying to hire, you know, my classmates from college and other people in my network that I, I thought were really great people that I wanted to work with and learn from. Uh, and I just kept realizing that it was really hard to close those hires because they would kept, keep uh, being more interested in companies that had raised money, uh, partly because of the stability, but more because they felt like maybe I knew what I was talking about. Maybe I didn't. But having the stamp of approval from a venture capitalist made them feel much more confident in their own instinct of wanting to work with me. And so when I realized that I was not prepared to, you know, compromise on the kinds of people that I wanted to work with, uh, I felt like it was a good decision for me to raise money at that time. Obviously, it turned out that lots of things changed around us. Venture capital market is always evolving. And so I think that was a really good time and a really good decision to raise money at that time because it let us do a bunch of things that we did afterwards. Right. Actually, that's a great reason to raise capital to attract some additional talent. Uh, how before you raised capital, uh, what was your major like selling point to those talented people that you wanted to bring on your team? Were you giving out decent amounts of uh, stock options or what, what was basically the major incentive for them to work? Yeah, definitely. It was for the most part, it was being a co-founder in the company. Uh, and I think you absolutely should do that. Uh, you know, whoever comes in is putting in as much time as you, and you should be you should be incentivizing them mm -hmm. as well as like helping them feel like owners and and reward them for their their hard work. I think the other piece, at least for me, I, idealistically, was a chance to do really good work. Uh, I, I love my craft. I, I love people that love their own craft. So as a you know as an engineer, as a designer, my pitch was always like. You know, there's there's part of it is building something. Part of it is like becoming a much better designer engineer and working together. We're going to push each other to become, you know, even better at our own craft. That was like, I think for me at that time was like a really exciting, exciting thing that I wanted to do. And I thought that would be something that would be interesting to other people as well. Definitely some of the people that got got interested in working with me, uh, it was a, we, we bonded over a love of, you know, certain products that we felt like were really well made, maybe sort of out of the mainstream a little bit. And we would we would just like really obsess over those details. And I think that was like a that was a vibe that we really sort of built off of each other and felt like, oh, if we work together, you know, we could obsess over 
these same details and build products that we're really proud to put our hands <laughs> on and put out in the world and kind of push things in, in a small way. Those engineers, uh, all of them. Yeah. But <laughs> let's talk about the pivot now. Uh, in the cassette, you pivot like roughly a year after the after you raised money. Right. Why and you know how did you make that decision and what were the major first steps when you decided that you know it's time to pivot? Yeah, I think the I think the first thing I'll say is that looking from the outside, it looked like we made a very big pivot. Uh, from the inside, it kind of seemed pretty obvious. And so kind of like uh, that might be helpful to draw the context from the inside. The reason I feel like it was kind of obvious is because we were kind of pulling the same threads all along. Uh, in this case, I had always felt like, you know, we're building a product A, but our monetization will always be from this kind of company who's trying to solve this kind of problem. Uh, our users will not actually be paying for the product and these types of companies will be paying us to solve this problem. And what we realized over time was that while product A was a great product, it was getting some traction. Uh, the the people that we had in mind for for paying for this product were simply not going to pay. Uh, there was mm. there was not enough demand from from the customers that we spoke to, and I think it was it was something that I could have probably figured out earlier if I wasn't so you know uh, sort of high on my own Kool Aid of this is a great idea <laughs> and kind of like whatever people would say I would hear it as they're saying that this is a great idea. Um, and so I think I think like that was a mistake that I made. But the really big catalyst for me was, you know, as as I after I raised money, I started spending more time with other founders who had sort of been on the same path as me. Things that they talked about and realizing kind of like, you know, how where again calibrating, like you said, because I hadn't really worked at a startup that was sort of in the same stage that I was at, where like we were trying to go cross that chasm, the the really famous chasm between the seed and the series A. And hearing from people around, you know, what are the challenges that you go through in that phase? Uh, let me sort of do a sanity check on my own uh, on my own situation, as well as I think the other big catalyst was I don't know if you know uh, sort of a little bit of Silicon Valley history, but around the beginning of 2016, there was a pretty big um, correction, which a lot of people were like predicting is going to be a burst in the bubble and so on. But a lot mm -hmm. of valuations came down, funding dried up suddenly and so on. And so it became really hard to raise money. And for me, I was a year I had raised I had raised money a year ago and I had about a year left of financing. And for me, it was OK, well, I have a year to find a way to raise more money or at least to turn my business into a revenue uh, generating thing. Versus before when I raised money, I, I thought, well, there's always going to be more money. I should just do what I want to do. Even if there's no revenue, I can just go raise more money. And it just, the market had become very revenue oriented, which I think was a good thing on the whole. But that kind of caused me to reevaluate this business model that I mentioned of are the people that I have in mind who are who I think are going to pay me, are they actually going to pay me? And that kind of led me down this path. And you asked, how did we go about doing the pivot? Um, I think for me, the, the big thing was this time I didn't want to make the same mistake I'd made before of building something and then realizing that people don't want to pay for it. And so I went kind of extreme in the other direction. So I, you know, I spent a few weeks with my team. We brainstormed a bunch of ideas. We came up, we decided to do two weeks of one prototype a day and we made 10 different prototypes in 10 days. And then I took those 10 prototypes to hundred customers. And I kept saying, what do you think of this? But, but would you actually pay for this and so on? And mm -hmm. as a result of that, I, when people would say no, I would ask them, you know, what would make this product more compelling for you and so on. And, and we would get some feedback and iterate on those prototypes. Uh, but as a result of that, towards the second half of those conversations, we started getting a lot of people saying, oh, this one idea is really good. I really like this. Can I pay for this? Can I use this? 
And that's actually what eventually became cassette. So it was the idea of, of helping you record important conversations. So you, especially when we were starting, it was around user interviews uh, and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. And so from there, it was again, I was like, okay, well, now I'm hearing a lot of positive signal, but I want to make sure I'm, I'm not wrong. Mm -hmm. And so the next thing we did was we built a website and we launched it uh, when we didn't even have the product. We kind of you know, built a prototype of what it might look like once we have a product, we had a pricing plan, we had screenshots, we had feature lists and so on. Um, and, and asked people to sign up and it wasn't just like put in your email address. We asked people to fill out like six or seven questions, which paid plan would you like and so on? Because we wanted to really be sure. And that was that was really great because in the first day or two, we got like, I think about 5,000 signups. And to me, that was like a really big right. validation because that was completely what I'd been experiencing before that. And so that that started us down this path of now we have a set of customers who are kind of almost like really excited about this product, want to pay us in a market that we don't want someone else to come and capitalize on. So we were trying to move really quickly, make sure we have the right product, test with those customers. So we launched, uh, you know, to those uh, to a small set of those people, we launched our first alpha maybe a month or two in, and we had it paid from day one so that people were actually paying us, giving us feedback, and then about months later we launched the product and things and things were pretty solid as a result of the iteration that we had done mm -hmm. nice and congrats on that pivot I, I know how hard making pivot is and you know saying admitting that you know the, the direction in the past was kind of gee now we have to switch <laughs> yeah. uh, so congrats congrats on doing that successfully so now let's talk about you know, that was a great move now let's talk about some bad moves um looking back at your experience with cassette uh, what do you think was the major mistake there, in, except for you know uh, making that prior to the pivot? Basically, what was the major mistake? Yeah, I think I think for me, I was straight out of college. Like, sort of a, a big summary of things was that I was really idealistic and also like kind of really self-assured. I thought I knew exactly what I want to do, and you know, I, I know I know how to do things differently, do do them my way. And I think everybody's mistake is sort of different, so it's less about you know, don't make the same mistake I made and more about just like realize where your mistake or your blind spot might be. But in my case, it was it was this sort of whole, the, the things you hear in the press are like, startups are like more about a mission and like changing the world and all this type of stuff. And I got really like excited about that side of things because that's where I, I really wanted to, you know, that's what I thought I want to do with my life. Uh, but, but I think the place where I didn't realize is a startup is still a business. It still has investors, it's still accountable for having customers, having revenue, sort of that side of things, I think I just kind of ignored. Um, and that was the piece that for me in, in particular, I think that that clicked in place when I sort of, I think got, got my bearings straight and we were able to actually uh, turn the company into a better outcome. Mm -hmm. Right, that's fair enough. Uh, not focusing on the customers is horrible. Uh, but, you know, looking back again at your mistakes now from the perspective of fundraising. So would you change anything in your fundraising process for Cassette? Yeah, I mean, I think if I could, I would have probably raised more money. I think if I if I tried harder, I probably would have been able to if I stuck to it a bit longer. Uh, at that time, I was just, I didn't know how much money I needed. I was a year out of college. I, I got a, a, what it sounded like a lot of money to me at the time we raised. 1.2 million from some good investors. I was like, okay, well, that sounds like a lot of money. I'll just take that. But I think that uh, just sort of after going through the experience, we actually, you know, we were incredibly cash efficient. We had up to five or six people working in Silicon Valley at the time, which is like, you know, you, salaries are pretty high in Silicon Valley. 
And then we made that money last about, I think, two years and eight months, something, something like that. Nice. Of, um, yeah, lots of, you know, lots of controversial moves and trying to save money in places and being really, you know, really cash efficient uh, wherever possible. Because by the, by the end of it, we were a year in when we when we came up with the new idea and it was like, well, we have half the runway that we had before. Now we really have very small amount of time to make it successful. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that's probably the one thing I would have done differently is. I wouldn't have worried so much about dilution at the valuation I was getting before I would have just raised a little bit more money that would have given us more time to experiment kind of knowing that, you know, it's, it's very unlikely that I'm right, especially at my age and my level of experience. And so I just give myself more room to, to fail and learn from my mistakes instead of having, you know, sort of only one or two shots at the, the right, getting the right answer. Perfect. So uh, my next question was about actually a good move with Cassette, but I think the best move with Cassette was the pivot. Or do you think there was something else that I'm not aware of that was like really good? Well, the company probably wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for that pivot. So I think that that was probably a really good move. Happy to also talk a little bit about the sort of rest of the journey after the launch uh, as well, if, if that's helpful. Sure, let's go. Actually, I'll say one, one thing I, I would suggest people to do, I think specifically from that previous story is really, uh, you know, test with customers. I think the, the one experience that I, I probably look back on the most is, is um, having launched that website without a, without a real product, which looked like a real product and said coming soon and had people, you know, request an invite and sign up. And that was like a really, I think a really great um experience that I would re recommend to people. Obviously, every industry is different, so do do what makes sense in your case, but I think that was a really good experience. The other one was sort of the decision to sell the company is always a hard one, and I think in my case, it, was, it turned out to be the right decision. I'm happy to talk a bit more about that as well. Sure, let's talk about the acquisition, actually. Yes, it was acquired by Evernote, great company. Uh, how did the acquisition happen? Did you, were you already working with Evernote when, you, when they decided that, you know, it should be a good idea to merge or did they just come out of the blue? Yeah, for me it was, um, so actually when we launched the product, we got some pretty good press, uh, pretty decent amount of traction. We were also trying to raise money at that time because, you know, as I mentioned, we were running closer to our, our window uh, out of time and we had launched the product, had a successful launch. I thought it was a great time to raise money. Uh, but, but at the same time, we started hearing from bigger companies who were interested in this space uh, to potentially acquire us. So first company reached out was Google, then Amazon, and then we had a pretty senior person at Microsoft who was a big advocate. And so I kind of used that interest to get meetings at all those three companies uh, in the corp dev sort of, uh, you know, ladder. And I used the fact that we were talking to those companies to get meetings at a bunch of other companies, which is what any CEO in my position would do is like, you know, exploit your, exploit your advantages. We tried to do that. And I think that just kind of gave us actually for me the bigger thing was to learn as much as we can about the decision that we were about to make to whether should we should raise more money continue to build this company or whether we should sell the company um and that that i think the the big piece in that was when we saw what these companies were up to some of which has come out some of which hasn't uh we got a chance to see you know what what microsoft is doing with transcription and and voice in Skype, in, in PowerPoint, et cetera, et cetera. You know what Google is doing with voice and assistant, but also inside of Google Docs and so on. It was like, wow, like obviously they have a lot of resources, a lot of at their disposal and customers are ultimately gonna care about where the best experience, uh, but do we wanna spend, you know, the next five years of our life 
trying to stay one step ahead of this huge barreling, you know, uh, company that's coming towards us with Amazon with Alexa and Microsoft coming with, you know, all the, all their sort of properties and Google coming with all their technology and so on. Uh, that was the main reason why we decided to take the acquisition offers more seriously. By the end of the process, we had two or three offers and we decided to take the the one that made the most sense. But I think that was a really good uh, experience to have to, uh, you know, to have gotten to see that side of things as well. Perfect, perfect. Love hearing the acquisition stories because they remind other founders that there is a happy ending coming, maybe. <laughs> uh, but let's talk about your current work at Coda. Uh, what do you do there? What is Coda about? And yeah, then we'll move on with, with Coda. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Coda, I, I like to say Coda is a, a much better Google Doc. Uh, and the reason it's much better than a Google Doc is because it's not just a Google Doc. You kind of do everything you can do uh, in the Google Doc, plus everything you want to do from a, from a spreadsheet, plus everything from PowerPoint presentation, plus, uh, you know, making a website, plus, uh, and, and pretty much all the way to making your own app. You can do almost everything from this really simple starting point of, I have a document, I want to put, put things in this document. Uh, and so it's a really powerful way for teams to kind of run their whole process and people to, you know, build out their ideas and, and share their ideas with the world. Um, it's been a really interesting journey at Coda. I helped lead the core product team, uh, working on, on all aspects of the product, including adding new functionality, supporting new scenarios, making the existing scenarios better, easier, and also just like along the technical axis of infrastructure, tech debt, performance, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Right. So now let's talk about actually comparing your startup and Coda. So looking back at Cassette and comparing it to Coda, what were the major like striking differences that you see there? Yeah, yeah. I think there are actually some very major differences between Coda and Cassette. And uh, obviously Coda, I joined Coda two years ago. Coda is about about five or six years old as a company. Uh, but Coda was founded by some pretty se uh, senior uh, leaders from from Google. Uh, the main, uh, the founder of Coda used to run the YouTube product, and he, when he decided to leave Google, pretty reluctantly, he was able to. He was he only left because he was so convinced about this vision uh, of this this product, which is actually over the last five or six years has pretty much been what we've ended up working on. It's pretty rare to find a company where, you know, the team is still so convicted in the same mission and vision that you started working on five or six years ago. But uh, that that vision backed by the kinds of experience that he had, the team that he had been able to draw the first five or six people from his own network led to the fact that they were able to raise 25 million in series A, pretty much I think without, obviously without a product, just at the formation of the company. And, and you know, in my case, I, I raised a million dollars six months after starting my company. And so raising 25 million, and then I think they followed that up a year or so later with another 35 million. And this is all before they had a product. They didn't even have a name yet. They hadn't even launched for like two more years. And so I think working at a company uh, that that's raised a serious amount of money, and by the way, from really great investors, the first round was uh, with Reid Hoffman, who's the founder of LinkedIn very uh, very well-known investor and you know uh, great resource to have on your board uh, as well as general catalyst and coastal ventures like really great investors like that and and the serious amount of of stability and, and money that you get i think it lets you do very different things that i couldn't have even dreamed of doing when i started my startup and i think it was a it was not 
necessarily an uncontroversial decision, but it definitely has its pros. So the biggest one I would say, and, and also the main reason why they decided to do this is because, again, working at Google, these guys, uh, you know, mentioned that they were so accustomed to working with the people that they wanted to work with. Like, it's very rare that you make an offer to someone at Google and you'd lose them. Like Google tracks their, you know, low, their, their, their close rates on offers. And on the other hand, in most startups, it's really hard to get to convince people. When you make someone an offer, they're probably they're probably really good. So they're getting offers at other places. It's really hard to convince them to leave XYZ big company to work at, you know, a startup. And and that's something that these people were not as prepared to do. They didn't want to work with just like, you know, people who are earlier in their career. So I think the fact that they were able to raise so much money allowed them to to hire much better people. So, for example, even today, our median engineering uh, engineer has an average of 12 years of experience. At, you know, a bunch of them are coming from really great companies like Google, Microsoft and so on. And so when you look at people like this, you know, they were making a, a pretty respectable money at Google and Facebook or Microsoft, and they have a house, they might have kids. They're at a different stage in their life. One, you know, like, you know, straight out of college might be. And so to be able to get people like that, I think I think it's it's a luxury that I haven't seen many other startups have the ability to do. And I think it definitely has a lot of pros. Like, I, I have not worked with a team that I feel so inspired and excited to work with every day at another startup. And that's been definitely the highlight, which I think would not have been possible without this this massive amount of money that they, they were able to raise. Yes, money definitely attracts some senior talent, so that's pretty interesting. Uh, but now let's talk about uh, you know more of a current situation. Uh, first of all, as an exit founder, I know a lot of exit founders do advise in mentorship of younger startups and angel investments. Do you do any of that, or are you just focusing on your current position? Uh, personally, for me, I, I think like I, I've been pretty focused on on making sure that I know what I'm talking about before I'm going out and pretending to be an advisor and investor. I've been last few years pretty focused on you know building my own skills and strength, but I have I have been looking at uh, I have helped you know other other startups that are in my network and starting to think about investment as well. So uh, pretty early in that in that stage, I'm I'm you know more focused on making sure I actually know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you have a lot of stuff to learn from those investors who are just like coming in. I have money. Let me invest. <laughs> right. So uh, great, great approach. Love it personally. And good luck with that. So um, what's your advice to founders who are trying to raise money now uh, who are starting their companies like literally now? Because it seems like you're you were in a similar situation when you mentioned that, you know, basically the funding dried up in Silicon Valley at some point, and now the funding is going back to the startup world, but still a little bit dry. So what's what's your advice to those people who are struggling with raising money? Yeah, I think, I think the, like I mentioned in our, at the time that I raised money, I think things have changed a fair amount. Uh, back then, you know, in 2014, 2015, it was not unheard of for people to raise money with just a PowerPoint deck and and, you know, a team, something like that. Um, and I think that's become much more uncommon now. Um, I, I think the I think the other piece is that a lot of unfortunately how fundraising works is very dependent on, on having a network and and getting someone in that in in your network to recommend you to someone that they know and so on. So if you're in that position, maybe you're still able to do something like that. But I think for the average founder, become much more of the norm now, which I generally think is a good trend, is a much more of a focus on having a real product. Uh, some kind of demonstrated traction, revenue, and so on. 
uh, and it's become so much easier to do that now. I would just say like that's like probably the best advice, uh, not just to be able to raise money because you know having a great product and and some kind of demonstrated traction is obviously great validation for raising money, but to be in the position where you have the choice to choose whether you even want to raise money or that you know you could actually be accountable for your own destiny. And honestly, in, investors would much rather invest in a company that doesn't need their money than than the company that really needs money. And so if you want to if you want to put yourself in a position where you don't need the money, you actually have both options. You have the option to raise money, you have the option to not raise money. And I would say that's actually probably the best the best path that I would suggest to anybody is build the best product that you can, try to get traction as early as you can with whatever resources you have. I mean, you know, there's so many no code uh, and so on like tools out there now that you could pretty much just prototype or even build a real product without writing any code, mm. maybe with like, you know, less than $100, maybe less than $1,000. If you have you know a little bit of money that you want to you know invest, it's not even really an investment. You just think of it as a nice dinner or something, and try like buy Google ads, buy some Facebook ads, test some ideas. You could actually you could actually get pretty far along with you know three digit amounts of uh, dollars of money and let's say like a few weekends of time or or something like that. You could get pretty far along and then just find customers, test something with customers, and get get feedback from them. I think is probably the best advice I would give. Perfect. That's perfect advice. I personally love it. I believe in this kind of lean way of starting things up just to see the demand. That's, that's I believe, is the best approach. And I'm going to be super biased here. But yes, I'm definitely on your side here. So um, on this mutually agreeable advice, we're moving on to the last point of today's episode, which is a call to action. So uh, what's the thing that you want the listener to do as soon as the episode is over? Yeah, I mean, I would say check out Coda. If you if you have a startup, uh, Coda is probably a really good way for you to think about running your team. Uh, you could pretty much build whatever you're trying to do pretty intuitively in Coda. But I think the other really inspiring part of it is we have a, a gallery of docs from from other companies, other makers. We now have you know a bunch of really well known and recognized companies that have committed to sharing how they are doing things. So everything from Figma, Spotify, you know, uh, a bunch of companies like this, Thumbtack, are sharing how they do specific parts of, of their process. So you could learn how to run an offsite from Square, of, uh, from the, sorry, from the CEO of Stripe and so on. And in particular, I would really recommend looking at, especially in this remote world, there's lots of, lots of resources on, on the doc gallery around how you could run your team remotely, how you could run your meetings all of it in Coda. And, and the, the benefit of it being in Coda is it's pretty much like a template. You just copy how Figma is running their product team or how, you know, Superhuman is doing product market fit and so on. Uh, and in particular, I'll send you a link to the remote work uh, starter toolkit that we've compiled of tools from companies like Zapier and so on that are, that are um, you know, doing remote for a long time on how they are managing their teams remotely, I think is a really useful resource for people right now. Absolutely, 100% uh, great advice and, I mean, great call to action. And, yes, I'll make sure to leave links to those resources in the description of this episode. So my call to action is usually go there, go to the description of this episode. There will be links to Coda, links to that uh, remote kind of teamwork kit. And there is always also going to be a link to a type form which you fill out. And if I like your idea, if I like your project, I'm going to connect you to my network of advisors and actually actively invest in investors because it's fun. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> fill it out and uh, have, uh, have a good day.
Yeah, thanks, Constance.